Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. I want to welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Thank you for joining us today. So glad you could be with us. We're going to be talking about one of the most important documents from the 20th century in America, in particular from America's era of the Civil Rights Movement, and that is Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. It might not be quite as famous or as well as sort of quoted as often or in the public consciousness as much as King's I Have a Dream speech, but it is in many ways as important as that speech in laying out King's vision not simply for the civil rights movement and its methods, although it's absolutely essential to understanding that, but also his vision for America and what it could become if the civil rights movement were successful. And to join me today in that conversation is my colleague and my old friend, Greg McBrayer. Greg, as many of you know, uh, faithful listeners, is uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at Ashland University. He is the director of the university's core curriculum. He is also director of citizen programs for Ashbrook. And just generally, a, a good human being, a, a raconteur, and a serious political thinker. Here at Ashland University, he teaches courses in political philosophy, ancient and modern, and international relations. He has been involved in our Ashbrook Scholar Program for undergraduates, also teaching in our American History Seminars, and in our Master of Arts in American History and Government. He is executive producer of this podcast, so I guess we just had to have him on the show. Seems fair. (laughs) And co-host of a wonderful podcast on political philosophy called The New Thinkery. Uh, I don't know when this man sleeps. I don't sleep. (laughs) But when he does, he must get good rest because his mind's always clear. There we are. Well, thanks (laughs) for that very kind introduction, Jeff. And I I have to agree with you that while the I Have a Dream speech is probably King's more famous one, I think this is much more, I think this is a much more interesting speech for exactly the reasons that you, you suggested. Yeah, it's deep, it's serious, and it rewards um, in-depth study yeah. in a way that um, very few other documents, public documents like this from the civil rights era or any other year in American history really do reward. Mm-hmm. Before we get to that kind of in-depth study, which I know we want to have that conversation, our listeners want to hear what you have to say about it, mm-hmm. a little bit of historical background on this document. It's called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Right. Why is it called that? Well, that's a good question, and uh, I'm sure folks would probably be interested to know that it's because King was in jail, in fact, in Birmingham, because he and some folks had been invited down to Birmingham uh, with the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference to sort of protest some things that had been happening down in Birmingham. Uh, most notoriously, I suppose, was a series of um, 18 unsolved bombings in black neighborhoods, hmm. such that Birmingham had come to be nicknamed Bombingham, and so they they staged these peaceful protests, um, and then were arrested for it. And they knew ahead of time. King was very clear about this. They knew they would be arrested for this, and so he spent some time in jail. And so he probably had some time to think about ahead of time, but also while he was in jail, what he was going to say here. 
And what about King's, this is 1963, right? right? This letter, which is also yeah. the same year as the I Have a Dream speech. Yeah. But what about King's record with the civil rights movement right. prior to his arrest in Birmingham, Alabama, and the drafting of this letter? Well, he had helped start the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference back in 1957 in Atlanta, and he had been part of the 1955 uh, Montgomery bus um, boycott. So he'd been involved in Atlanta and also in Alabama for some time, so I guess five to eight years at this point, and had been known, and that's why he was invited by um, a leading Birmingham civil rights activist named uh, Fred Shuttlesworth into Birmingham to sort of continue this going. So why 1963? I mean, I think that it's it's April of 1963. King is in jail in April of 1963. And in January of that year, January of 1863, so what, just two, three, four months before that, right? There had been a very famous human being who'd been inaugurated as the governor of Alabama, who gave a very famous speech. I'll quote from it right now, just so we can get an idea of what's happening in Alabama at the time. Sure. Here is the governor of Alabama in 1963 being inaugurated. He says, quote, today I have stood where once Jefferson Davis stood and took an oath to my people. It's very appropriate then that from this cradle of the Confederacy, this very heart of the great Anglo-Saxon Southland, that today we sound the drum for freedom as have our generations of forebears before us done, time and time again through our history. Let us rise to the call of freedom-loving blood that is in us and send our answer to the tyranny that clanks its chains upon the South. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So I think it's fair to say that King is in Alabama at sort of maybe the height even of racial segregation in Alabama. Hmm. And he, interestingly enough, his letter, he's arrested, as you say, for these nonviolent um, political protests. He does break the law right. and is therefore arrested. Mm -hmm. While he's in jail or, or as part of the protest, a letter is published. Yeah. Which he makes reference to in the very first paragraph of his letter. So his letter is prompted in a way by another letter. Yeah, that's very funny. That was published in the local newspaper, as you mentioned. So this letter, the letter from Birmingham City Jail by King opens, my dear fellow clergyman. And so you, you see immediately that there's a very clear audience. King is writing to these clergymen, although mm -hmm. I suspect and I, I think it's reasonable to assume that King probably had a larger audience in mind, which probably would have consisted of his fellow African-Americans, also white moderates, is my suggestion, like these Alabama clergymen. And these Alabama clergymen um, had written a, pet, a paper, excuse me, had written a letter in the local paper calling for King to cease and to be prudent. Uh, the, the charge against King was that it was unwise and untimely for them to be engaging in these nonviolent protests at this time. Because uh, Bull Connor, who my folks at home might have heard of this guy, a rather nasty uh, local politician who had run for a position and lost, and so he was about to be out of any kind of power, and, and a, ostensibly a more moderate administration was about to take over in Birmingham. And so these clergymen were saying, look, give this new administration some time. It's really unwise of you to do this right now. And uh, they, they present themselves as being very moderate, as I mentioned. They sort of say, look, we sympathize with you. Uh, we, they were supporters of the civil rights movement. They just sort of thought it was moving too quickly and should be gradual and sort of move in accord with the temperament of the peoples. I should mention that it was principally Methodists and Baptists, as is typical in the South, but there was also a priest and a rabbi on this list of uh, religious figures. I think it was signed by eight uh, of these clergymen. And so King is directly addressing them, uh, white, moderate religious figures in okay. the South. And as he says in the very first paragraph, if I can read it here, please, um, he says, 
If I sought to answer all the criticisms that crossed my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence <laughs> right. in the course of a day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statements in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. Right. So I suspect, I mean, the structure of this text to me, at least in the first half of it, is deeply apologetic. I've got to use that word. Maybe I should Yeah, what do you mean it. by apologetic? Yeah, I don't mean to imply that King is saying he's sorry. He's, he's not sorry. He's, he's apologetic in the old the Christian sense of the term. He's, he's going to defend himself against the charges from his Christian brethren that what he's doing is unwise and untimely. And so at least the first half of the speech is King laying out a defense, an apology, for why he's doing what he's doing there at that time in those circumstances. And so, I mean, I think you're right to stress the goodwill of, of the clergyman to whom he's speaking, that if they were sort of white racists, he wouldn't bother to respond. Um, and if there were various other kinds of uh, extremists, he also probably wouldn't respond. Yeah. So this is an apologia, I guess, in the old-fashioned yeah, sense right. of that word, a defense of one's actions right. and the rightness of one's actions. It's a, it's a, you know, he could have gotten out of jail and just had a private conversation with sure, them. But sure. as you said, he publishes a letter. Yeah, and you he think wants the, people to see this. Yeah, people want to, he wants them to see it. And right. the audience is not just these eight guys. No, I think, the, I mean, obviously the, the broader audience is, like I said, probably white moderates, probably also African-Americans who might be on the fence about whether or not they want to support this particular version of the civil rights movement. Right, because we sometimes forget, we sometimes think that all African-Americans simply supported King and everything he did. No, of course not. There were um, the black nationalists. And there were also, as King alludes to in the in the speech or in the letter, excuse me, um, there were blacks who sort of fared fairly well under segregation because they were the leading businessmen, and so therefore they didn't have to face competition from whites. And so there were some blacks who were sort of complacent and sort of thought, well, things are fine. You know, I've got my nice little business on the side, so I don't have to do these okay. things. So he has a broad audience, right. and there's a kind of rhetoric and rhetorical purpose and character to I this letter, so, yeah. then. Yeah, I mean, I mean, very simply, the the first thing he's trying to do is respond to why it's unwise or untimely. The clergymen don't use this term, at least at least if memory serves, of being an outside agitator, but this was sort of the common charge levied against, you know, kings in Atlanta. He comes down to Birmingham to protest, and so, you know, it's not, it was not uncommon for people to say, you know, mind your own business, stay in Atlanta, like, we'll deal with our own problems. And he responds with perhaps one of the most famous lines in the entire letter, uh, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so he's, and then he sort of says, well, at least within America, uh, what happens somewhere, it sort of is connected to all of us. And so he denies that there are even outsiders there. So part of his defense is saying, well, I'm not truly an outsider. I, a, I was invited here, mm -hmm. so therefore I'm not, I'm not an outsider in that regard. And then B, we're all Americans, uh, in, in a strange echo of some of the other thinkers we're doing in this the American Idea series, like Lincoln, who speaks about all Americans as being sort of united. All right. Yeah, so I, I do think that he's responding to that. And then with respect to the untimely business, I mean, they're saying, look, the new administration's coming in, and he, he has this famous response of, you know, we've been waiting, uh, what, 300 and some odd years, 340 years, he says, right? So how, long, how much longer would you like for us to wait? Right, right. Take us then to the beginning, if you say this is his defense against the charge that these nonviolent, civil disobedient uh, protests yeah. are untimely and unwise. Take us through the defense as he lays it out here in the beginning sure. of the letter. Of course. Well, as I mentioned, the first thing I think to say is that he, he actually denies the idea that he's an outsider. Mm -hmm. That's step one. There's a lot more to the timeliness. As I mentioned, he responds, well, look, we've been waiting 340 years, so right. people, keep, people keep telling us to wait. But the, the crux of the defense, as I see it, actually, is, is a defense of nonviolence as a mode, uh, as a mode of political action. 
And so I think through the course of the letter, he, he contrasts his way with do-nothingism on one hand, but also political extremism on the other hand. So he's, he's trying to set himself out to look like a moderate. And part of that is sort of laying out what it means to do nonviolent uh, political action. And he says, this is only like five or six paragraphs in, mm-hmm. that there are four basic steps to any nonviolent campaign. And he says, we went through these four steps. I'll, la- I'll name them here in just a second. But I think that a lot of people just think that we can just rush in and protest anything. And I think that King is actually showing that his protests were calm right. and rational. And it was after a lot of deliberation, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of self-purification, he says. And so it's not simply the case that these people are just willy-nilly jumping around saying, protesting anything they don't like. And so the first thing they did was, uh, here are the four steps. Step one, collect the facts to determine whether or not any injustices exist. As I mentioned before, these dozens of uh, bombings that were unsolved, I think that's pretty good evidence. There's other evidence he gives. Step two is negotiation. And he, he sort of lays out, look, we tried to negotiate with the city. We actually did reach a negotiation and a settlement on an agreement to do something. Uh, for example, to take down certain signs, and then the city didn't follow through on them. So we, we did negotiate. They didn't do what they said they were going to do. So step two, we also followed that. The third step I find most important, probably, and it's, I already alluded to it a moment ago, it's self-purification, where they, they sort of got everyone who was involved, and they sort of asked them a series of questions, and there was training to sort of, can you, can you commit to nonviolence? Hmm. Uh, and I think that that's, in other words, are you sure that you can withstand beatings, being spat upon, being hurled insults at, and remain calm? I mean, we should remember those, if you've seen pictures of this, right? Like, these are well-dressed human beings. They're wearing suits in many cases or dresses. Uh, they're receiving some of the most awful treatment you can imagine from human beings and dogs and fire hoses and these things. And it was a series of making sure that you had the right character and disposition of soul to be able to withstand that kind of a thing. Hmm. Only after those first three steps do they move to step four, which is direct action. And he, again, he presents direct action as a middle ground between doing nothing and political violence. So that the middle between nothing and violence is nonviolent action. So he's trying to present himself as a moderate. Of course, implicit in all this is the idea that he's been charged as an extremist, which he'll go on to, to mention ex- explicitly. Right, right. After laying out the four steps sure. to... Uh, nonviolence. He mm-hmm. says we have to follow all of these. Right. So there is real deliberation. There's rationality. There's a, a, a deep concern for the character of oneself. Yeah. And and I would say, in a way, not surprisingly, it it, it to my mind immediately when I hear self purification and thinking of these things, I think of Christ's injunction to turn the other cheek. Yeah, it's very Christian. I mean, that's something we should stress here that this this speech is very Christian. And it's very much wedded in the Western tradition. So on the one hand, the Bible, and he quotes a number of Old Testament prophets, mm-hmm. or Hebrew Bible prophets, as well as Jesus explicitly. He likens himself to Paul and other Old Testament prophets. But on the other hand, he also likens himself to Socrates. So he sort of shows himself firmly in this tradition of Western political thought in America. But if I could go back to the self-purification for a moment, and you mentioned that there were a wide variety of black opinions. I think it's easy for us in you know. In, in present day to look back in the 1960s and think, well, of course, every black would have been perfectly in, on board with this and only unreasonable people would not have supported this. And I, I just think that that's wrong. And I think it's only because of the benefit of the success, you know, hindsight, we can see that it was successful that everyone would, would have gotten on board. And that when I teach this, I, in fact, I'll just confess to you, I don't think I could have done this. I think it takes an incredible amount of courage mm-hmm. to do what Martin Luther King Jr. was exhorting his fellow African-Americans to do. And I, I mean, I can take a punch but I couldn't not punch back. 
And so, I, I mean, it's, I, I find it extremely impressive, the sort of self-control and discipline, and, and like you said, the Christian turn-the-other-cheek virtue that, that's at the core. I'll just, if you don't mind, I'd like to relate a, just a little story. I, I, um, a few years ago, I, I listened to an interview with Condoleezza Rice about her parents. She grew up in Alabama, as, as folks may know. Condoleezza Rice, the former U.S. Secretary of State under George W. Bush, and she was speaking about a book she had written called Extraordinary Ordinary People about her family members. And she talks about her parents, and she says, she said in this interview that uh, her father refused to take part. Of course, her father's African-American. She herself is African-American. Her father refused to take part in Martin Luther King Jr.'s demonstrations after having been invited. And uh, I'll read her account of what she says, uh, why he said he wouldn't do it. She says the following. This is from her book, as I mentioned. My father had his own reasons for refusing to join King in his acts of civil disobedience. I can remember it as if it were yesterday, a conversation between my parents about how to react to the call to take to the streets and behave non-violently. I stood in the hallway of our house, listening as my parents conferred in the living room. And I'm not going to go out there because if some redneck comes after me with a billy club or a dog, I'm going to try to kill him, he said. And then they'll kill me, and my daughter will be an orphan. Hmm. End quote. So... I, I, first off, I think it's very impressive that Condoleezza Rice's father had this sort of self-knowledge to realize that he couldn't be a part of this. But I, I, I read it as an example to show you that I think there are perfectly decent human beings who had perfectly decent and reasonable reasons for not wanting to be a part of this at the time. Right. I, like, it takes nonviolence. I mean, he mentions, you know, the, the three prophets from the Old, Test, uh, the Old Testament who walked into the fire, right? I mean, like, that takes a certain strength of soul that not a lot of folks can have. Right. So uh, far from being uh, a tactic of the weak, yeah. it's a tactic of the strong. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, for what it's worth, he's he does express some, I mean, he expresses an awareness that it may not work. Uh, he very famously says, right, that uh, freedom is never voluntarily, voluntarily given by the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, he's, he's I think he's very sensitive to the fact that this is a risky undertaking, to All be right. sure. So this is... Um, sort of an argument against a response and apologia against the idea that this is unwise. Right. It can't work. It'll, he's like, no, it can work if we follow these, this path of nonviolence. We right. can follow this path of nonviolence. The untimely part. He, he has a paragraph here under where we were just talking where he says, you may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? Yeah, but as I mentioned a little moment ago, they said that they had tried negotiation, um, so that hadn't worked. But also, he's, he goes on to give the example, and he'd given the example already of Paul and other prophets, and here he gives the example of Socrates. Yeah. And he says, uh, so you know, he, he's fully well aware that this project might not be successful, but some of the most impressive examples from our history are successful examples of the kinds of methods that he's talking about, people who did these things nonviolently. Uh, Paul spread the gospel. Uh, the Old Testament prophets spread um, spread the teaching of the Torah, and Socrates apparently, uh, by his account, really got people to start thinking critically about themselves, and and, and did so nonviolently. But doesn't it create? I'm I'm, a, I'm thinking now. I'm I'm a recipient of this letter. I'm yeah. reading this letter, and I'm thinking, what well, won't it create tension in the community? Yeah, uh, this is the allegation against him, right? That what you're doing is going to cause tension, and King says very clearly, yeah, that's the point. He wants to cause tension, good tension. There's this other civil rights advocate who's famous for having said he wanted to create good trouble or something like this, which is, I think, more or less in the spirit of what MLK is saying here, right? He did want to create tension because tension is somehow necessary 
if we're ever, ever going to overcome the past injustices. And he even says, I have earnestly opposed violent tension, right. but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. That's what exactly does he mean right. by that? A, a constructive nonviolent tension. And there, again, as you mentioned, he brings in Socrates yeah. as someone, he says, who created constructive nonviolent tension in his hearers. Sure. I guess in my mind, as I, as I read this and I reflect on it, you sort of realize that Socrates' audience might not have been the immediate jury at the time, right? And so that he might have been trying to get other people to think about the justice of his cause. And I think that King, just as we mentioned, like the Alabama clergyman or his direct audience, but maybe it's actually wider and broader, and he's actually reaching out more largely amongst the American community. King was very well aware that this would be televised, for example. Hmm. And that this would create a tension in the minds of people outside of Birmingham, outside of Alabama, and nationally. Right? And so if you're sitting at home in Minnesota and, and you, you sort of, before television, you sort of hear about the plight of African-Americans in the South, you might be able to sort of say, well, it's probably not that bad. But as soon as you can see, right, on television, these decent, handsome, young people, well-dressed, clearly being victimized and brutalized by the police, I, I think it's going to create tension throughout the country. And this goes back to the idea that we're all interconnected to make change on the South. And, and in fact, later on, when uh, George Wallace tries to prevent... Uh, two young people from going to college at the University of Alabama this, this same year, you know, the National Guard gets sent in. Mm -hmm. And, and it, you realize that maybe part of what's going on here is that the issue needs to become national in order to be solved, that he's, he's appealing to people more broadly. So he the tension then is, in a way, a tension in the minds and in the consciences I think that's right. of, of the nation. Yeah, I think that that's right, to show them the injustices that they might, otherwise might be able to ignore. Hmm. Yeah. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. Well, it's one thing to say this is timely because the time for negotiation has passed. We tried it. It's another thing to say, and it's not unwise. In fact, it's wise because we can create this constructive tension through the method of nonviolence yeah. if we follow it truly. But it's a third thing to say, okay, but you're doing all of this, Martin Luther King Jr., by breaking the law. Right, right. So the funny thing is in his defense of himself, that's very helpful, uh, Jeff. I'm glad you noticed that because he, he goes through the direct charges, the untimely, unwise. But then he turns to the question of justice. And he tries to argue that what he's doing is, in fact, just, which is, I think, t bound up with your question of the legality of what he's doing. So uh, first, he appeals to a higher law, very much in the spirit of Western philosophy, Western mm. theology. right? So he says, just like Aquinas knew uh, that there was a law above the law of man, I know that these unjust segregation laws in the South are, are fundamentally unjust. So he reminds the, his readers that everything the Nazis did was legal, but not just. And everything mm. the Hungarians did was uh, illegal, but, but just. And so he appeals to this 
idea of a natural law to show that what he's doing is, is just. And just a couple more, maybe one more point here. Yes, he's aware that he's breaking the law, but part of the nonviolent program is accepting the responsibility and facing lovingly the punishments that would come with the legal with the breaking of the law. They have to be able to accept that. And he, he actually says this uh, quite literally. He says, I'll just read here. He says, I hope you're able to see the distinction I'm trying to point out between an unjust and a just law. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law, as would the rabid segregationist. That would mm. lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. I mean, there's already a bunch of themes that you and I have been talking about. Openness, loving, uh, accepting the penalty, trying to arouse the conscience of the community. And he, he addresses head-on the question of whether or not he actually respects the law, and he, and he insists that he does. And I'll just add to this point that throughout the letter, he only, all of his references to Jefferson, Lincoln, anything American, anything Western, Socrates, Aquinas, Buber, um, any of these thinkers, it's all positive. And he presents himself perfectly in step with the history and tradition of America. Nothing is critical, right? We're going forward. He's on the same page as all of them. And therefore, he, he has respect for the law, and that respect for the law includes a respect for the highest law of our land, the U.S. Constitution, and the Declaration of Independence, which he hmm. says was majest majestically penned or you know, penned by the majestic hand of Thomas Jefferson or something like this. So that's interesting because I'm thinking, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a segregationist right. in Birmingham in 1963, I'm thinking, and he even points this out in, in a paragraph, I'm thinking, wait, the civil rights movement has said that we need to abide by the Supreme Court's 1954 decision in Brown versus Board of Education, okay. and we need to desegregate our schools. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, you say to us, obey the law. Right, right, right. And then, we, then you come here to Birmingham, and you disobey the law. Right. So this hypocrisy or something. This hypocrisy. How can you command us to obey the Supreme Court as the law and then break the law? Right. How does he respond to that? That criticism. Well, as I, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think that part of it is, one is the the distinction between just and unjust laws. Okay. But I think Talk, secondly... Can, sure, can, can we just stop for there for yeah, a second? Yeah. Talk about that difference. What In King mind, King's mind, what's the difference between a just law and an unjust law? Sure. He says it, he lays it out very particularly and very clearly. He says that an unjust law is a law... He doesn't give it... He says actually not a law, it's a code. An unjust law is a code that a majority compels a minority to obey but does not make binding on itself. And so the segregation laws, the whites impose upon the blacks, but don't follow themselves. And then he gives several examples of blacks being disenfranchised. He, he mentions that there are counties in, in Alabama that are majority, overwhelmingly majority black, where not a single African-American is, is registered to vote. And I mean, one could give countless examples of these things, right? And so that, the idea is that it's a majority oppressing a minority, mm -hmm. which, by the way, has some, I think maybe if our listeners have been listening for a while to the American idea, there should be some echoes of... James Madison there, in fact. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm thinking of Federalist Number 10, that was the majority faction. Yeah, yeah. So an unjust law is a law that a majority imposes a, on a minority that oppresses them, that at one point, I think he says, violates the basic fundamentals of human personality. Yeah, for sure. Treats a human being as not a human being. And he gives, you know, this is such a beautiful letter, and it is highly rhetorical. I'm, I'm really impressed by it. 
And one of the most moving examples um, of sort of trying to arouse the emotion of the listener or the auditor or the reader is his own example about his daughter, right? Where he can he gives this very vivid example, which I you know I can't help but identify with. I don't even have kids, and and I just sort of imagine some kid coming up with questions. I'll just read it for you. Yeah. But this is what he talks about. Like this is dehumanizing. Uh, um, segregation teaches blacks from a young age that they're different, that they're less than human, and what he's really worried about among other things, among other things, is that this in, sort of engenders a kind of bitter hatred in blacks toward their fellow human beings. In other words, it, it spoils their soul in some way. And he's, it would be nice right. if, if the African-Americans could rise above it. So he gives the example of his, his daughter, right? He's, he mentions that um, she, um, let's see if I can find the passage. Here it is. He mentions that his daughter saw a commercial on television for an amusement park. And he's, he's sort of, I'm just going to read this for you. Um, he says how, how difficult it is to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the unforgettable corners of, your, corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by the nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes, and well, I probably shouldn't read that, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John. And your wife and your mother are never given the respected title of Mrs. I, I can go on, but the point here is, like, I, I don't see how one can't be moved by that. By the way, the rhetorical, the anaphora, right? When you, when you, when you, like the, the amazing repetition, but also like just tugging at your heartstrings. Uh, and so he says at the end of this, like talking about his daughter and his son and then his wife and his mother, and he says, I hope you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. And I, you know, I, I'm just, I'm deeply moved by that. And I imagine that there were a lot, I mean, I think the evidence is that lots of Americans were moved by this. Right. So these unjust laws, we can establish that segregation is an unjust law because it is majority oppression of a minority that and the majority as you say doesn't have to abide by its own laws it's not segregated from anything that worth having like amusement park and it treats human beings like they are not human beings can i just real quick on that amusement park thing like it seems like a not very serious like you don't get to vote you go to jail you don't have access to certain goods like the amusement park one is so effective right yeah even though it's, I mean, the grand scheme of things. I have a young daughter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. The person listening in Minnesota that you were mentioning yeah. gets that. Yeah. I mean, it really just brings it home to, I think, the, the reader or the listener. Yeah. For sure. Sorry, so, I didn't mean to... So, no, no, I mean, it's absolutely right that yeah. that kind of powerful rhetorical example. Um, but he's not just making a rhetorical argument. No, he's no. making a kind of moral and philosophical argument at a pretty high level here, right? To be sure. Of saying... Look, at the, we established that segregation is an unjust law. Okay, then the question is, what has to be our disposition toward an unjust law? Should we, now, we, we know what he has said, but there are t- two possibilities. One is to say, um, well, look, it's an unjust law, but it's still a law, so we have to follow it, and then we'll work peacefully to change the law. Right. And there were lots of folks who are, made that argument. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln did. Uh, a lot of white moderates, a sure. lot of African Americans sure. in, the, in the same, right? Then there's the more, the sort of, uh, you might call the Malcolm X approach, yeah. which is we just violently oppose unjust laws and all unjust forces. Right. 
So we break the law, we do it violently, and we don't accept any consequences right. because it's harming us. So why should we? Right. And then you have this middle approach of king, which is to say, as you already laid it out, we break the law in a nonviolent way, but then we accept the consequences, which is why he's letting, writing this letter from Birmingham jail right. because he's been arrested and he accepts the arrest. What is his argument What's the philosophical tradition that he's connecting to? You mentioned Thomas Aquinas, among others, and St. Augustine. That his argument for why it's just to disobey an unjust law. He says you have a duty to disobey an unjust law. Wow. In fact, not just that it's justifiable or excusable or justifiable or that it's okay, but that, in fact, you ought not to follow an unjust law. Um, I mean, the argument is that there is a higher law. Um, and there's some, there's some degree to which I think he seems to be implying that the Declaration and the United States Constitution greater appro approximate to a greater degree what that higher law actually is than any of these individual laws. And so, I, you know, okay. what's, what's the argument? I mean, on the one hand, it's... So we would follow the U.S. Constitution, he says, he because does. it's more likely to be just, right. but this local segregation law is unjust, right. and we're not going to follow it. But I suspect, you know, the conscience bit that he keeps tugging at, I think he thinks that there's something like a natural law that's been imprinted on the human heart. And here I think a lot of it is his, him drawing from Christian theology. And he mentions a lot of, you know, a lot of um, martyrs for religion. And I think he's he, he he's basically likening himself to these martyrs. Um, but the, he's not necessarily being a martyr for religion. He says at the very beginning he's a sort of uh, martyr for freedom. He's trying to carry the gospel of freedom. So that higher law would seem to be connected with the higher laws that's been articulated in the Declaration, that all human beings have a right to life and liberty, and that they are all equal. And so that, that I, I suspect, insofar, insofar as these segregation laws uh, violate that, that's part of our responsibility to break them. Okay. Did you have something else in mind? No, I was just thinking that. That's so. You've got this higher yeah. natural law. To, he says, and we've appealed. We Americans have appealed to this from the very beginning. The Declaration itself appeals to it, right? And yeah. it says we're going to violate British law, right. <laughs> in the name of this higher natural law. Right. We're now in that same situation where we're going to violate this local segregationist law in the name of this higher moral law, yeah. which says we need to treat everyone as human beings and as equals. All right, but. The white moderate says, and he puts this in their 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 own mouth after he argues in favor of this. He mm -hmm. says, "But what about law and order? Right, you'll order. open order, you, you, order, will, order. you will you'll open Pandora's box right, right, right. if you say I can break a law that I think is unjust, and maybe that lots of people outside of Birmingham, Alabama, think is unjust. You're going to open Pandora's box to disorder. Right. No, I think that's I and I." Obviously, I'm not on their side, but there is something to that argument, and he, and he recognizes that. I'll just mention that the paragraph you're reading from, this is about halfway through, roughly. It's where I think King switches from giving a defense of himself to turning on the offense. He, began, he begins to prosecute, I would say, the, the white moderates. Hmm. He goes from defending himself to turning to accuse them. Okay. And he, he even says, I think this is, I mean, the first time I read this, I had to stop and make sure I was reading it right. He says, uh... You guys, you white moderates are the problem. I mean, I'll, I'll just read it. He says, sure. um, I've almost, he says, I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who's devoted to order, more devoted to order than to justice. So, I mean, part of his defense is turning and going on the offense. He's like, you guys are actually the problem. You guys who keep saying, wait, and this will just lead to disorder and anarchy and all these things. 
Um, and he's saying, this is where he says, for example, we actually do have our constitutional rights. So it's not simply we're going to break anything willy-nilly. I would also mention, just going back to the beginning, that you have to have gone through these four steps. Right. Uh, and so therefore, you, you can't you can't just say, well, I'm not going to follow this law saying uh, don't steal other people's stuff because that doesn't, you wouldn't be able to go through that list of the order and, and it wouldn't satisfy it. You wouldn't be able to show that injustice has been done to you. You wouldn't be able to show that you've tried other other means to sort of alleviate an injustice like um, negotiation. And so he does, this is not simply anarchy. He, he's had, he has a system. He's following Gandhi. He's following the spirit of others who've come before him in sort of how they're going to do it, what uh, requ the requirements of for a law to be unjust, and when you can actually break that law uh, in a nonviolent way. So you can, breaking an unjust law is not injustice, but the way that you break it c could be unjust. I'm just thinking, for example, sure. is, this is not looting. In other words, exactly. he's saying this is not a call right. to looting, like, well, because injustice has been done to us, we're going to smash store windows and steal TVs out of a, a store. And it's not an eye for an eye, it's turn the other cheek. Right. Yeah. And his hope is, his belief is, that if you sear the conscience right. of the nation, they will see the difference between nonviolent civil disobedience right. and violent anarchic rioting. Right. And they will say, these are the good guys. Yeah. And therefore, what they're fighting for, we really need to see happen. I, I sort of, it's funny that he mentioned Socrates in this letter from Birmingham City Jail, because if, the, if folks at home have read The Apology of Socrates, it's very, you know, it's beautiful and it's moving uh, and it's all about justice and how he's the best guy ever and how could you dare put him to death? And then at the very end, he gives a sort of threat to the audience. And he says, look, my students are going to come for you, which is sort of a strange thing. I don't mean, I find it really fascinating that in this very beautiful, moving letter from by uh, Martin Luther King Jr., he gives what I would call a sort of I don't know. I mean, it's in, it's in very polite terms and these things, but it's kind of a threat. I mean, he says, look, you think we're the extremists? This, he sort of t returns to a defense of himself. We are not, we in the civil rights movement, the nonviolent movement, we are not the extremists. In fact, we're in the middle, we're the moderates. Hmm. I've mentioned this before, but on the one hand, you have the complacent Negroes, as he says, right, who are fine with the way things are, who don't want to do anything. Uh, they're, they're marked by complacency. And on the other hand, you have what he calls the black nationalists, and he, and he names them. It's Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. You know, Malcolm X becomes uh, famously associated with this movement. And he says, look, there's the do-nothing people, and they're the black nationalists, the Muslim black nationalists. You want to deal, deal with them, or you want to deal with us? Uh, and by the way, we are marked by nonviolence, and our characteristic is love. So you have complacency, hatred, or love. And he, he, the way he presents it is that love is somehow the moderate middle ground. And he says, if you don't, if you ignore us, if you don't deal with us, uh, then you're going to have to deal with the black nationalists because you're going to only further alienate most black people and drive them into the arms of these uh, of the Muslim movement. And he says, I've tried to stand between these two forces. I've I've tried to, I'm the one. I Martin Luther King Jr. I'm trying to be the one who's reasonable here and who can negotiate with with whites in our country, and sort of put us all on a better footing. I, and if you don't deal with me. It's going to be much worse for everybody. It's interesting because... And by the way, just... And that, and that group also does not... I mean, uh, Elijah Muhammad's group does not... I mean, the Constitution is bad. The Declaration is bad. It does not trace itself to Western political thought at all or, or Western civilization. I once taught this uh, to the Ashbrook Academy students, as you know, to some high school students, and, and one of the young ladies in the class said, I've never heard anybody in the civil rights movement connect 
their agenda, their goal so deeply to Western civilization as though it's a continuation of it, not a rejection of Western civilization. And I, I couldn't put it any better. I think that that's right. King sees himself very much in the tradition of Christianity on one hand and Western philosophers on the other. And America, of course. Right. As he's not an outsider to this, as no, you said. He yeah. is an American arguing to Americans about living up to their own American conscience. He likens what he's doing to the Boston Tea Party at one point. I mean, like, he's, yeah. an, he's as American huh. as apple pie. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it's a middle ground, yeah. as he says. He ex explicitly declares it a middle ground. But he also says, in response to people who say, but you're, it, it's, an ex it's extremist, this method. He goes on to say, okay, if you want to call an, me an extremist, right. oh, good. I'll yeah. actually accept that I'm label. an extremist for love. Yes. That's what That's he says. Right. He That's says, right. was not Jesus right. an extremist for love? Love your enemies. Bless yeah. those that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despise, despitefully use you and persecute you. Isn't that extreme? And he calls Lincoln extremists. And he calls Thomas Jefferson an extremist. Was, he was an extremist for liberty. Lincoln was an extremist for the Union. This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And so he says, I, here I am. If you're going to call me an extremist. So it began, he begins by defending himself. No, I'm not an extremist. The, the, the Elijah Muhammad, right. they're the extremists. But then he's like, you know what? Actually, I am an extremist. But I'm an extremist for love and I'm an extremist uh, for my friends. I want to do, I want to do, and for justice. And he almost wants to argue that, he, as he says here, the question is, will we be extremists for hate or for love? Right. The path of tension that's building yeah. is going to lead to one or the other. Right. Hate and division or love and reconciliation. Yeah, that's right. And he wants to argue that his path, of course, is the path of love and reconciliation ultimately, but you have to get through this tension to be reconciled. You can see why this method would be appealing not only to African-Americans, but to white Americans. I mean, this is such an appealing, attractive message. Love, peace, justice, harm. We can all get along together. Mm -hmm. right? um, he looks forward to the days, he says in, in I Have a Dream speech, when black children and white children can hold hands, go to school together, sing songs. But, there's, but, in the, but to get there, to get in there. the meantime, yeah. there's gonna be, it's going to be uncomfortable. Yeah. It's going to be struggle. Right. It's going to be not just holding hands in kumbaya, nope. but fierce... Um, uncompromising action yeah but in a loving spirit absolutely this letter mm -hmm. it's powerful the way you've laid it out philosophically it. yeah morally rhetorically how influential is it in the civil rights movement i think it's deeply influential i mean we all know gosh i mean i think that this is probably instrumental in giving uh, helping to get the civil rights act and the voting rights act passed which I mean, is the civil rights act is in the next year 64, 64 and then 65 the voting, the voting rights act yeah, I mean, I think it's instrumental in uh, King getting, um, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize, right? I mean, he, he's he's attaching himself to this this long um, respected tradition of people who can accomplish things through nonviolent means, and I think that yeah, I, I think this was really successful. I think it's a beautiful speech. I think it's intelligent, but I also think it it actually did it sort of awakened the conscience of Americans, which is I think that was the goal to show people who otherwise would maybe have turned a blind eye or sort of covered their ears to a certain degree so that people could no longer turn a blind eye and it became clear what was happening. Right. That's not, that's for the 1960s and maybe 70s. Right. Why is this a, doc, a document in your mind that our listeners, people out there, oh, citizens gosh. of this country, sure. that they should engage with? <sighs> yeah, okay. If I'm being honest, 
it's something I alluded to a moment ago. I, I think this is such a good path, and I think it's persuasive. I guess if I were, I won't hedge my, I won't hedge here. The reason I think is because the alternative that King alludes to here, the bitter hatred, I think is a much more available possibility right now. Hmm. I see a lot of people who want to turn to what, at his time, were the black nationalists and and folks who want to sort of burn everything down and sort of think. I mean, he actually, King actually connects uh, the plight of African Americans to 1619 in this speech or in this letter, excuse mm -hmm. me. And but despite doing that, he nevertheless holds that the Constitution and Declaration are good. And I I think that as a practical matter, as a matter of practical politics, I think for an ethnic minority, this is just a more prudential path. Mm -hmm. But the justice side of me, the side of me that, that loves the beautiful, the noble, and the good, thinks that this is the nobler, more beautiful, and more just path than the, the alternatives we see around us right now for right. racial reconciliation. And it also, but just, it also recognizes what is good about America and recognizes that America, whatever sins it has had, the, the, the remedy for the sins are already there in the system, in the Constitution, in the Declaration. Hmm. That's powerful. That's a... a the. The remedy is in the American idea. I think that's right. Wow. Very powerful. Yeah. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today and thank to you, unpack the meaning of this really amazing, profound, and ultimately um, powerful letter from Martin Luther King Jr. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. Subscribe for more at ashbrook.org slash AmericanIdeaPod and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at AMIdeaPodcast. From the Schramm Library in Ashland, Ohio, I'm Jeff Sickett.